We'll hear argument now, number 016978, Gary Albert Ewing versus California. Uh, Mr. Denver. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In March 2000, Gary Ewing walked into a Los Angeles pro shop, took three golf clubs, stuck them down the pants legs, and walked out. He was quickly apprehended for that crime. What was the value of the golf clubs? Because the, the, the value of the golf clubs was approximately $1,200, it was a grand theft under California law. Uh, for grand theft, as a general matter, California provides a maximum sentence of three years. It also, because Mr. Ewing had served a prior prison sentence, he would be subject to a recidivism enhancement of one year. So the maximum sentence that he would have faced under California law, but for the th- so-called three strikes law, would have been four years in prison which could have been reduced by one-half by his conduct in prison and his work in prison. However, because Mr. Ewing had a prior conviction for for first-degree burglary, which has been classified as a serious felony by California, and for robbery, which has been classified as a violent uh, felony by California. Was it armed robbery? He was armed with a knife at that time. And because of those two convictions, he came under the the California three strikes and your outlaw. And as a result of that, he received a sentence of life imprisonment and with with an added bar that he could not even be considered for parole for 25 years. Would it be fair to add uh, that another reason for the sentence was that the judge uh, did not disregard the priors, and that was because the judge had the record in front of him and the record showed other a, a, a history of other offenses. Would that be a fair statement? It is correct, Your Honor. The judge did have discretion to, to strike the priors or to reduce this wobbler offense to a misdemeanor. She declined to do so partly on the basis of his prior record. His prior record were, were all misdemeanors, uh, convictions prior to that time. But misdemeanor? Yes, Your Honor. All, all his, uh, he had, he, the prior convictions that he had were felonies, were, th- were, were four felonies that all occurred within one year in 19, in one month in 1993. There were three first-degree burglary convictions, and then there was one robbery conviction. He had other... Well, now, those surely are not misdemeanors. No, Your Honor. I, I was, I thought Justice Kennedy's question was directed not to those, what they call the strike priors, but to the fact that he did have other Previous crimes were misdemeanors. I I think that's the the sentencing judge relied on that to to some degree in denying him any discretionary relief. It actually went back to 1984, didn't it, with grand theft in 84, grand theft in 88? Your Honor, the grand theft actually was a misdemeanor, uh, as we've shown in the appendix to our our reply brief. Uh, There was a misconception that that was a felony. In fact, it was a misdemeanor in Ohio. That was the Ohio offense. The, the one that was um, alleged to be a felony, I think, in the government's brief, is, is this day was, was only a misdemeanor. In fact, we have attached the, the governing court records as an appendix to our reply brief that shows it was a misdemeanor. How, well, many, how many convictions in all, felonies plus misdemeanors? Your Honor, I, I believe that he had the four, the four prior convictions, the, the strike convictions, the felonies, and I think he had another nine misdemeanors and then this present offense. I think that's the... And, and the purpose of the, of the three strikes law, as I understand it, is to take off of the streets that very small proportion of people who, who commit an enormously high proportion of crimes. I forget what the statistics are. But it's something like, uh, you know, uh, of, of those convicted, 20 percent uh, commit 85 percent of the crimes. It sounds to me like your client is a very good candidate for that law. Well, you got, if that's you got, a reasonable law, it seems to me this isn't precisely the kind of person you want to get off the streets. He's obviously going to do it again. Your, your Honor, we believe that the law in itself is not unreasonable, and it could result in a, in a proportionate sentence. It did not in this case. Under this Court's decision in Solem versus Helm, the Court has said that you can look to the prior record as relevant to the sentencing decision because it, it aggravates the present crime, but the focus must remain on the present well, crime. So, this so, so Solem stands with Rommel and with Harmelin. There are really three different points, and Solem is probably the case that favors you most. But certainly Rommel is good law and Harmelin is good law, and I think those cases don't favor you. Well, Your Honor, I, I, I believe that, that Rummel, the, the court said in Solem, the majority opinion said that 
that Rummel would be controlling only in a similar factual situation. We do not believe you, we have that here. And as far as Harmelin was concerned, the basic principles of, of Solem were reaffirmed by seven justices in Harmelin, and we believe when applied here will show that this is a grossly disproportionate sentence. Mr. Denver, would you clarify whether your challenge is strictly as applied, because some of the, some of the points that you make seem to be going to the statute wholesale. So, for example, you talk about it, statute's infirm because it has no washout for aging offenses. But there w- was no such offense at stake here. The strikes were all rather recent. That's correct, Your Honor. And, so, and to answer your question, we, we, uh, we are challenging only the sentence that Mr. Ewing received for the crime that he committed, that he was sentenced on. There's, there's much discussion on both sides of, as, as the background of the three strikes law. We have no doubt the three strikes law could result in a, in a constitutional sentence. It did not in this case. So, it, so however the scheme is that reached this sentence, this life sentence for stealing three golf clubs, that sentence is, falls under the Eighth Amendment in our view. But we, so we should leave out things like no washout, that uh, someone who never served any time would be subject to the three strikes? I think that's correct, Your Honor. They don't play into this case. And, and I think that, as I said, that the three strikes law is merely — it's the process that produced an unconstitutional uh, sentence. It could have been produced by a different sentencing scheme also. Well, when we're examining uh, the constitutionality of the three strikes law as applied to this sentence, uh, we should take into account, should we not, uh, the purposes of the California law, which was to have uh, a law which was gave simple, clear notice of the three strikes policy. Uh, and if, if you want us to take case by case, then, the, then that whole policy is undercut, it seems to me. Well, Your Honor, I, I, don't, th- I don't think that's true. In Solon v. Helm, the, the Court made very clear that it, it was looking only to the sentence that was imposed on Mr. Helm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you, you had said that the, the principal focus has to be on this sentence. I, I'm just not sure what your authority for that is when we have a, a recidivist scheme of, of this kind. Well, Your Honor, the, 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 in Solon v. Helm, the Court, of course, had a recidivist scheme. The focus there was on number of, of prior offenses as opposed to the nature of the prior offenses. The Court said that, that the, the defendant under double jeopardy principles cannot be punished for those prior crimes. However, they are relevant to the, to the sentence imposed for the present crime. And the, and the reason they are relative, and the Court said this at best in, in Greiger versus Burke, is what they, what, they, what they authorize is a, quote, stiffened penalty for the latest crime, which is considered to be an aggravated offense because of repetitive one. That's at page 8 in our reply brief. But, but what Solon v. Helm made very clear is, although the prior crimes are relevant, the focus must remain when, when judging proportionality or gross disproportionality on what this, what this defendant did at this time, what he is being sentenced for at this time. I'm just not sure how that works. What am I supposed to do with recidivism as a factor in analyzing this sentence? Your, Your Honor, some weight, but not controlling weight or something like that? I, I, I think that what the Court can, can say is that his prior crimes are relevant in the sense that they make this crime a more aggravated crime than a crime committed by a first offender. Well, and that there can be a reasonable enhancement for that. But, but in this case... He has been sentenced to he is, his sentence has gone from a maximum of three years for a first offender to life, all based on the recidivism. At well, that why, point, why can't the state say that where a person has a string of convictions like this man has, that it's time to get him off the street, as Justice Scalia says, that he simply cannot conform to the law? Your, Your Honor, if, if, if he in fact committed a crime at this point, it was a serious or a violent crime. They, they may have a basis, but what the court has said very clearly is that is, is the focus remains on this because otherwise he's being punished for the prior crimes. I'm well, what's, what's the reason for saying that, the, that you can only that the focus remains on this crime, but others are relevant? I mean, that, that really is, is kind of meaningless, it seems. Well, I, I don't think so, Your Honor, because as they say, what the court has said over the years is that, that, that the important part about the prior crimes is that, that it shows that this is a repeat offense. And, and, and the fact that he has committed offenses in a row makes this particular offense worse. The fact that he has committed 
worse offenses in the past does not aggravate this crime. I, this, is, this still remains shoplifting three golf clubs regardless if he had been a triple murderer or anything else. And that's what he's being punished for because if he's being punished because of those prior crimes, their nature, there's really d- serious double jeopardy. What do you think would be enough? 30 years? Would you like 30 years for, uh, for uh, walking off with three golf clubs? Your, Your Honor, I, the, if, you, if you look I mean, at our, if, if you're going to look on, on it as just uh, stealing three golf clubs and, and, and cast a blind eye to his long record of criminal activity. I don't know why you can give him any more than, you know, a couple of years. Well, Your, Your Honor, if, if, if you look to, our, to the comparison with other jurisdictions, I don't think this has been highlighted in our brief. There are only, there are only five jurisdictions that would have allowed a life sentence. There's only one additional jurisdiction, Montana, that would have allowed a term of years as great as the minimum sentence here, and that's Montana allows us five to 100 years, and most states allow for either grand theft or recidivist grand we, we theft, said, 10 we, years at the most. We said in Rummel there's always going to be some state that punishes more harshly than others, and certainly it was not intimated that that state, therefore, it was cruel and unusual. No, that's correct, Your Honor. In Solon v. Helm, the court noted that that he that Mr. Helm could have received a, a comparable sentence in one other state, and nevertheless held that it that it fell under the Eighth Amendment. Well, well just help us one more time. Uh, that prior history is is relevant, but then how relevant? Uh, well, you're, you're, you say the principal focus has to be on on the three golf clubs, like where some judges out of Victor Hugo or something. That's all we have to. Focus on, but this, there's, a, there's a long recidivism component here, and that's the whole purpose of the California law that you're asking us to ignore. It seems, Your, Your Honor, and, and, and what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, is I'm going back to what the court said in Solon v. Helm and its analysis, which I think is controlling here. It, ma- it made the point that the, the prior convictions, he cannot be punished for those, but, but they do aggravate this present crime that he's being punished for. And the way they aggravate it is, is, is that they shows that it's a repetitive offense. Now, he can have a reasonable enhancement of the normal penalty for grand theft based on the repetition aspect of it. But at some point, it becomes unreasonable. And it becomes unreasonable if you go from three years to life based on his prior crimes. Why isn't that, it reasonable to say if he commits another felony? He's committed, you know, three already and, and nine other convictions. One more felony, California tells him, and you go away for life. Why isn't that reasonable? Be, and, this, and this was a felony. Be, because of the nature of the crime that he committed, which is stealing three golf clubs, a crime that is not deemed either serious or violent under California law. But is a felony under California It is a felony. It's a, actually a wobbler that could be charged either way. Well, but why in this why case, can't California felony. decide that enough is enough, that someone with a long string like this... Uh, simply deserves to be put away. Well, Your Honor, if, 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 if that were true, then there would be no limiting principle on recidivist laws under, under the Eighth Amendment. It would, at that point, you could say the mere fact that he broke any law, if he broke a traffic offense, a petty offense, would show that he couldn't follow the law and could get a life sentence. Oh, I'd be with you there if it was a misdemeanor, you know, some, but this is a felony under California. It is a felony, and, and it's one of the least grave felonies in, in California. But we have... Given, we've said at least here, that we are going to give uh, great latitude to state legislatures in determining how many years to give and how to categorize an offense. Why don't, why don't we look to the Harmelin case for the standards rather than Solem? Harmelin came later. Well, Your Honor, I, I think you, you, do, you do, because as I understand the Harmelin case, if, if you take the dissent and the plurality, they, they, they both agreed on the basic principle here, which, which is that there cannot be gross disproportion between the offense and the sentence. And, and the reason I go back to, to, to Solem versus Helm is that it was a recidivist case and there was some further information. I, I, I don't... As I read the court's opinion, at least the plurality opinion in, in Harmelin, the big change was that you would, you would not look automatically to intra-jurisdictional or inter-jurisdictional comparisons. You would first have to find an inference of gross disproportionality before you'd go to the second, the other two steps. That's what I understood to be the, the, major, the major refinement of Solemn v. Helm uh, that was in the plurality opinion. I'm, I'm slightly stuck on this because I'd like there is some relevant information that I can't get a hold of, and you may have some in your experience, but it isn't in the brief. Uh, imagine, let's take the set of people 
who have committed at least two serious crimes or more, maybe 50 serious crimes. They're very serious criminals. And they're warned, if you do anything again, you've had it. So think of that set of people. Now, I would like to know, in light of that set of people, now one of the members of that set commits a crime equal to stealing $1,200. For they steal 1200 or equal to that. That's a very subjective judgment. What's the longest sentence such a person has ever actually served? Here they are going to 25 years, real years. And the second question I'd like to know is what is the least bad crime that such a person ever committed who did serve 25 real years? Well, I'd like to know both of those things, and obviously they're find-outable. I, I, let me see if I can answer your question. As far as under the three strikes law, there is because it sets this absolute minimum of 25 years. It's a life sentence, but it, but it adds a, a kicker to it, which says, unlike other life sentences, you have to wait at least 25 years before you can even be considered. So, we, since this law was passed in 1994, we have no experience. With Obviously, this law. I don't want experience right. under this law. That would be circular. Well, you're what I'm looking for is in the absence of this law. Oh, I'm sorry. I understand. In the question. absence of this law. What is the longest sentence a person like yours, and I'm defining a person like yours to be a really bad criminal who now will commit another crime equal to or the same as stealing $1,200? And there's loads of records, I mean, in the California Adult Authority before uh, this law was passed, etc. And the second question is what is the least bad thing such a person who really served 25 years did? Right, that, that, those are empirical questions, and you're talking about this being unusual. I don't know if it's unusual unless I know what happened to other people. Well, Your Honor, uh, I don't, I, there's nothing in the record that would answer that, but, but let, let me see if, if I can answer in a different way. But for the three-strike law, Mr. Ewing, with his record, could receive no more than four years. Now, there, there are other recidivist laws in California besides the three-strike law. Under the California Adult Authority, which was only the law in California for 70 years, uh, people could receive very, very, very long sentences. They, they could, Your Honor. In California... And, uh, not this long for this thing, but... but, I, but I, uh, I think that's right. I, I think the long sentence... The, the California substituted determined sentencing law for indeterminate in 1977, and, but under the old indeterminate sentencing law, my, my clear recollection is that those long, indeterminate sentences were always triggered by serious or violent felonies and not something of this. No, they, they, I've looked it up, actually, and you're no. quite right that this is not as, as uh, you couldn't get this long a sentence, but you could get a pretty long one for being a third offender and committing a property crime. And, uh, it, but I, that doesn't tell us how long the people actually serve. Well, Your Honor, if, if you look for the question of parole in California, which, which the, the, uh, the state suggests is, saves its life sentence. The court looked at this in, in 1995 in, in the case California Department of Corrections versus Morales. And what the court said at that time was that 90% of all defendants who came up for their per first parole hearing were found unsuitable for parole. And that 85% were, were found unsuitable at subsequent he hearings. Now that has not improved any because, as you'll see in, in the amicus brief of Families Against Mandatory Minimums at page 18, as of 2000, the Board of Prison Terms, which is the, which is the parole authority, their official records showed that they only recommended parole in 1% of the 2,000 cases that came before them with a life sentence. Mr. Denver, can't, uh, can't uh, the people of, uh, this thing, by the way, was not adopted by the legislature, was it? It was adopted by, by plebiscite of people. By both, Your Honor. By both. Both, both by legislature oh. and, and by. By plebiscite. So the people of California decided we want to be tougher. Why, why do we have to be bound by whatever, whatever the more permissive scheme was earlier? The people of California knew that scheme, and they decided this is no good. We still have too much crime. We're not punishing people enough, or we're not keeping them, keeping them incarcerated long enough. Why do we have to be bound by, by whatever the previous record was? Wait. It seems to me the question before us is, is it unreasonable to put away somebody who has this record? 
Your, Your Honor, first of all, as to the question of, of initiative versus legislation, as my understanding, the Court in other areas has said that there's no greater deference given to one than the other. But the other question is, there's no doubt that some deference has to be paid by this Court to legislative judgments or initiative judgments and the questions of punishment and in dealing with recidivists. The Court has made that very clear. But it is that deference that has led to the Court setting a very forgiving standard. The Court said that it would not require in this area or as excessive fines strict proportionality between the crime being punished and the sentence. It is said it is only when there's a gross disproportion. And that's a very deferential standard. That is a standard that allows the legislature to make many reasonable judgments, but well, says that so some judgments are unreasonable. How much is too much? Well, Your Honor, I, I, life imprisonment for, for the crime of stealing three golf clubs, we believe is cruel and unusual punishment. It's not, but we're just going. It's 25 years. Yeah, yeah, it's 25 years that he'll really serve. We know that as far as what happens after those 25 years is a matter of parole or a decision by other people. Your Honor, the, the sentence that he's been given is, is life in prison. He's been consigned to die in prison unless some administrative agency determines to let him out. And as, as I've just quoted you... But I mean, parole in all the cases you're citing is relevant, so you can describe it as you want. We both know what the facts are. The facts are he has to be in jail for at least 25 years, and then he might be paroled. And he might be, but, but on, there's, no, there's nothing in this record that would suggest he has a reasonable expectation in that regard. In fact, in fact what's before the Court would, would suggest that there is not a reasonable expectation, particularly if the animus that drives that drove the passage of this law continues for 25 years, and they still think, well, gee, if they committed these prior crimes, they ought to be locked up for life because they may commit other crimes. In the statistics that you were quoting, though, those were not three strikes cases. Those are not three strikes cases. Those are cases where people might have gotten reduced time for good behavior. That's correct. And one question I I wanted to ask you, in, in view of the infirmities of Mr. Ewing, is he still alive? He is alive, Your Honor. Counselor, his age and his lost eyesight in one eye as a result, but he's still alive. How old was he at the time of sentence? He was 38 years old. He's 40 years old now. So, practical matter. I mean, this 25 years is probably a life sentence for him, unless there's some major medical developments. Mr. Denby, you you conceded a moment ago that that the prior offenses can be considered for purposes of treating this offense as an aggravated offense, given the prior record. And yet, when you answer, you've done this more than once, when you have answered the question going to disproportionality, you have said it's 25 to life for stealing three golf clubs. I don't think you can have it both ways. Either your argument is it's 25, the appropriate comparison is, or the appropriate characterization is 25 to life for three golf clubs, in which case you, in effect, are telling us, ignore the priors. They don't aggravate. Or you've got to say it's 25 to life for stealing three golf clubs when you have a prior record, whatever it was, nine prior offenses, including four felonies in this case. Which is it? Because I assume it may well affect the result. I misspoke. What we say is the focus must be on the present offense. It is an aggravated offense. He is a repeat offender. He is a repeat offender. He is someone who committed this offense with a prior record of offense. Is it inconsistent with your position when you say the focus must be on this offense? Is it inconsistent with that to say this offense is stealing three golf clubs worth $1,200 by somebody with a prior record of nine offenses? Is that consistent with putting the focus on this offense in the terms that you're using? I think it is in the sense that it shows that there's been some, there's been a series of repetition. But what I'm suggesting to the Court is that regardless of the repetition, the fact that it's a repetitive offense, if the focus remains on what he did now, the triggering offense, which under Solem v. Helm is the focus, then no matter what he has done in the past, no matter how much repetition, it is grossly disproportional to sentence him to a life sentence. At that point — A hundred prior instances of stealing three golf clubs 
would not affect the analysis then on your view? Your Honor, if, if, there, if, there were a, if there were a series of crimes of the same nature, for instance, if well, there Well, I've just, I've just given you one. Yes. A hundred prior — three golf clubs every time, a hundred times. Uh, would that justify the, the treatment that he's gotten here? Your Honor, I, I think that that would, that would show a propensity to steal golf clubs. But again, I, I don't believe — I would concede that. I don't believe — <laughs> Posit further that his score has not improved. <laughs> oh, he shouldn't be penalized for that. That may be on his control. Okay, but if, if, we, if, if we've got our, our crazy example of the hundred priors exactly like this, and we follow your verbal criterion, at least, of focusing on this offense as aggravated, would this be disproportionate grossly? I, I believe that life is, because... It is still the crime that has to be punished. I mean, and, and this is what the court said in Solomon v. Helm. This is well. Maybe Solomon we Helm. were trying. Maybe we were trying to have it both ways verbally because we were imprecise. But with respect, I think that's what you're trying to do. Because uh, on on the one hand, you concede yes, it may be regarded as an aggravated offense uh, in light of the priors. And then in the next breath you say, but the focus has got to be on this offense. Your Honor, I, Your Honor there's no doubt that the prior record, and, and the Court has said that, is relevant to the, to the punishment for the present crime. And it does aggravate it. But there are limits to how aggravated shoplifting three golf clubs can be, no matter what has happened before. Even, the, even with the hundred prior instances? Your Honor, it's still, three, it's still stealing three golf clubs. It's not, it's not robbery, rape, murder, or something of that nature. I mean, it, it, is, it is still there. I, the, the, to raise your question, what if, what if someone had a long history of jaywalking and had, a, and had seven, seven or ten or a hundred convictions for jaywalking and jaywalked again? I think the court would not say you could get a life sentence for that. Just I, I, don't, I don't think it would, and the reason it wouldn't is, I assume you would concede, is that jaywalking does not hurt other people the way uh, 100 instances of stealing golf clubs worth $1,200 hurts other people. It, it, it hurts in the sense that it's a property crime and causes well, yeah, and, 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 and may lead to, to something beyond property crime. Isn't, isn't grand larceny much more likely to result in physical confrontation, Your Honor, physical I, injury, than jaywalking? It is, it is, Your Honor, and I think Which is that why it's a felony. I, and I think that if, if there had been some, some violence had actually occurred out of this, then he undoubtedly would have been punished under a different statute. Serious crime in part because of that, in part because of the, re, of, of the risk of, of physical confrontation that it poses. But, Your Honor, California determined that when it set the ranges for grand would theft. You like, would you like to reserve time, Mr. Denver? Uh, if the court has further questions, I'd rather answer the questions uh, than reserve time. Uh, California considered that when they set the penalties for grand theft, and they set the penalty as a maximum of three years in prison. If they set different penalties for grand theft from a person and for robbery, there's, there is all those things are taken into consideration here. And, and the fact that this could have eventuated in something else, the fact of the matter is that it did not. And, and, in fact, if anything, Mr. Ewing seemed to be doing everything he can to, be, to get out of there undetected, if, if, that, if you look at the facts of this crime. I'm curious about one thing. Was he really a very tall man, or were these irons rather than wood? <laughs> Your Honor, to tell you the truth, I have no idea how he could have done that. It seems to me a miracle that he could have actually got out the door, but he uh, apparently did. He's not a very tall man, as I recall. Walking is not an essential part of golf because otherwise walking with those I, I, golf clubs I, in his pants would have been very difficult. I, th I think he, uh, he was planning on removing them before he, he took used the golf cart off the car. Right. Your Honor, I would reserve any additional time unless there's additional questions. Very well, Mr. Denver. Thank you. Mr. DiNicola, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, first, I think in answer to Justice Breyer's question, I don't know what the statistics are under the old indeterminate sentencing law that was in effect in California until 1976. But in a way, I think the, Your Honor's question uh, triggers an issue that I think is central here. The ISL, the old California law, was premised uh, very explicitly on a penological theory that emphasized rehabilitation of the offender. Um, I think the question that's raised in this case uh, and it's a question that's particularly apt in light of uh, the Harmelin opinion, is when can a state decide that they're going to move away from a more lenient policy 
of, of rehabilitation or, or, or extending leniency to a first-time offender and move toward a policy, a tougher policy, of, um, of incapacitation. So, so tell me, am I fair to assume there never in the history of the United States has been a person who, of the set, I'm only, I don't want to be pejorative, I want to characterize it your way, and I'll characterize it as taking the set of very serious criminals with very serious records, and a person in that set commits another crime, and the other crime is approximately theft of $1,200. And am I fair in saying there hasn't been ever a sentence in the history of the United States in the last hundred years anywhere close to this one? And I base that on my knowledge, which you could get, it's public, of 35,000 real cases in the federal system where to get a sentence like this one for a prior offender, you had to, you have to now, you know, hijack an airplane, commit murder, something really serious beyond belief compared to this, and that the worst sentence you could get for something like this is about four or five years. Then I look to the California Adult Authority, and I see under that sentencing, nobody could have gotten more than ten real years, and indeed the average was somewhere around five. And you have all those records, and you have come up with nothing in your brief. And therefore, can I say my assumption is this is by an order or factor of two or three times higher than anyone ever was sentenced before in the United States for such a thing. You see, I'm making a very extreme statement empirically. And I want to know what the response is to my statement, and I want to know why I shouldn't hold you to my statement since you have the information, and why I shouldn't say that's just way too much. Well, again, Your Honor, uh, the, my, my, my answer is that I, I do not know what uh, those records would have shown. Uh, I guess he shouldn't hold you to it since you don't have the burden of persuasion here, do you? I thought you were defending a, ju- a decision below. Yes, and I, I did interpret the issue to be a proportionality issue rather than an unusualness issue. But I do something in the recesses of my mind tells me that we had a three-time loser statute in California. And I think that put people away for life without parole. Well, all right. How do, how do we decide? How do we decide if uh, you say of this serious set of criminals, you go to jail for life if you jaywalk? I mean, uh, the next time. Is that, is that disproportionate? How am I supposed to say what is or was not, is not if I don't look to the empirical facts? And I'm not holding you to present empirical facts. I'm just saying, why shouldn't I decide on the basis of empirical fact that is available? Well, in our view, the, the, the most prominent kind of objective factor that this Court could look to in weighing this sentence is what the legislature has said are, are felonies. Uh, what California has done in this case is they've narrowed their uh, target to a subclass of felons who have committed uh, what the legislature has deemed to be, and I think what on the face of it can, can reasonably be interpreted as being, serious or violent crimes. What's the limit? What is the divide line between grand theft and petty theft in California? $400, Your Honor. When I went to law school, it was $100, except if it was citrus you stole, it was $50. <laughs> now, now it's $100 if it's citrus, Your Honor. <laughs> but what, once there's that predicate of serious or violent felonies uh, set in place, then what the three strikes law does is I think reasonably moves toward a a policy of incapacitation upon the commission of not just any new crime, not a misdemeanor or an infraction, but a new crime that the legislature has One of the things that puzzles me about the statute, maybe you can enlighten me, I thought that if there were two priors who were violent but not related to property, such as murder and rape, the, the third related to property wouldn't trigger the statute. No, Your Honor. The way the statute is written is that if uh, the prior felonies uh, meet the, the statutory definition of being serious or violent, if you have two of those, then any new felony triggers the three-strike sentence. Even if you, if you had, uh, say, a murder conviction and a rape conviction, and then you committed a, a wobbler that was a property crime, would, would the statute treat that as a third strike? Yes, because uh, wobblers are felonies by definition in California, and any felony... Ca- uh, cla- uh, Regardless of the character of the first two strikes? 
as long as the first two strikes meet the level of being serious or violent, which I see, but, and there's no requirement that it be related to property. I'm, I misunderstood. No, Your Honor. Okay. So I don't know how to work with felony and misdemeanor because across the nation, my impression is that those are classified in very different ways. And they're classified sometimes according to the prison that you serve in, as in Massachusetts. And sometimes you can find a felony that, in ordinary common sense, is a lot less serious than certain misdemeanors. So that, that's why I'm very pushed to know what to work with unless you work with empirical facts. Well, we think in California, the felony uh, is defined by the, uh, not just the locus of where the term will be served, but also by the length. It's more than a year. And we think that that's a traditional uh, line of demarcation between, between offenses that, uh, over the course of time, a society deems to be of elevated seriousness. Some of our constitutional jurisprudence makes it makes uh, turns upon the distinction between felonies and misdemeanors. Yes, it? Your Honor, I, th I, th I think that is so, and, th and there are political uh, restraints on uh, on the legislature in, in enacting laws of general applicability. There are certainly economic restraints on a legislature in deciding to set a, uh, a, a punishment scheme that provides for long terms of imprisonment. That, that's costly, um, and that um, that to to um, for a court to, to second-guess that comes, we think, perilously close to the court suggesting that the legislature can, uh, in some instances, uh, not declare a certain crime to be a felony, but must declare it to be a misdemeanor. And we don't think there's anything in the court's jurisprudence that would, uh, that would support that type of, uh, of an intrusion. Mr. D. Uh, Nicola, there's a lot of discretion built into this scheme. It comes across as three strikes and you're out and that's it, but it's not. For, there's the discretion in the prosecutor and discretion in the judge. Are there, in Los Angeles or in California, any guides to prosecutors in exercising their discretion, say, whether to, to treat a wobbler as a misdemeanor or a felony? There are no statewide standards. Um, each elected district attorney uh, in the various counties in California uh, has the option of promulgating guidelines. Some of them have, and the fact of the matter is some of them, some of them differ. We think that's, that's a rather unremarkable um, uh, event in light of the fact that prosecutorial discretion uh, is always going to lead to some sort of different um, approach uh, depending on local conditions. But there is not, as far as I know, uh, any statewide uh, guideline and certainly nothing that would be binding on the local prosecutors. The prosecutor can uh, charge something as a misdemeanor. As far as the striking a strike is concerned, is that solely for the judge? Well, I suppose it depends on what's charged. The prosecutor can decide not to charge. Yes, the prosecutor under the statute is, is required to allege the priors, but the prosecutor uh, may seek dismissal of the prior strikes, uh, either in the furtherance of justice or because of um, problems of proof. But the judge also has authority to strike strikes, even without the consent of the prosecutor in California. So and similarly to, to reduce a wobbler to misdemeanor? Yes, the prosecutor in a way has that discretion because he or she can charge a, a, an alternative felony or misdemeanor as a misdemeanor in the first place, but even under the three strikes law, the trial judge retains the discretion to sentence a, uh, a, uh, an alternative felony misdemeanor as a misdemeanor, and that would take the case out of the three strikes uh, scope. May I ask you a question about your theory of the limits of the constitutional protection here? Supposing the offense was speeding, and it can be a dangerous speeding, and you, had a, you said that a 15 arrest for speeding it gives you this very sentence we got in this case. Would that be permissible, do you think, just on the theory that Justice Scalia has explained, well, this guy is just too dangerous, we just don't want him on the street anymore, so we'll put him in jail for life, 25 years without possibility of parole? Well, we think that might possibly be constitutional, Your Honor. I, possibly be constitutional or unconstitutional? Po might, might possibly be constitutional. I think it's more likely that it would well, why be. Why wouldn't it clearly be constitutional if we're, if we're thinking about protecting the public from repetitive offenders? Well, because I think the limiting principle that we're seeking here, Your Honor, is one that's premised on the felony uh, uh, classification. If the Do you think this statute would have been unconstitutional if they'd said it's a misdemeanor when it's 1,200? 
if the, if the legislature just had called the three golf clubs for $1,200 by misdemeanor instead of by felony, would that change the constitutional analysis? It, I think it would make the Constitution — it might change the constitutional analysis. It, it might make the result different. I think, again, once you have the predicate in place of the serious or violent felonies, um, then I think — the, the, the reason you're — What's serious or violent, it, it really doesn't have to be violent. It has to be serious. But you could have had $1,200 thefts, four or five of them, and he would still qualify, wouldn't he? No, Your Honor. If, if uh, the, the prior crimes have to uh, qualify as serious or violent under uh, the definitions of a separate statutory scheme, so but they — Are there not serious crimes that are not violent? Yes, I think that's true. There, there are serious crimes where, where no injury is inflicted, but the crimes, I think, by the nature, tend to be crimes where the prospect of violence is rather imminent. But, but there, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to understand the theory. Is violence an absolute requirement, in your view, in one of the priors? No, I think uh, — I think. Okay. Uh, so then we could have something equivalent, maybe instead of 1,200, 2,000 or something, but if you just had five or three or four $2,000 burglaries, that, would that be permissible to put him in jail on the same sentence that you have in this case? I, again, Your Honor, I th it's, a, it's a much tougher call. I think it might be permissible to do it, uh, provided that the sentence allows for a possibility of parole. Uh, that would 25 it. years. Yes, that would distinguish it from Solomon, Your Honor. But nevertheless, here, the, uh, the, the predicate, even though the prior crimes don't necessarily have to involve the actual infliction of violence, they are crimes that apply the in, in your view, violence is really more significant than the number of prior offenses, if I understand you correctly. Well, I think it might be a sliding scale, but I think violence does play, uh, p play a significant role and can justify a scheme like this, even in the absence of a great number of priors. But, you, but I'm not quite sure what your view would be if there were no violence but just seven or eight high-speed offenses, say speeding or or $1,200 golf clubs? Well, we think a lot, a lot would depend uh, on whether the legislature and the jurisdiction had determined for, for on, on an historical basis and for reasons independent well, whether those Being is dangerous, people get hurt in automobile accidents. It's, it seems to me it's exactly the same risk to the public that you have with this kind of crime. But we think if the legislature declares, tho declares those to be a felony, then I think we become we become it a lot. Depends closer. on what the legislature calls the offense. Uh, it, yes, uh, it, it it does, Your Honor, in in a very significant respect because what the legislature calls the the, the offense in connection uh, with it being a misdemeanor or a felony does reflect, we think, a reliable, uh, long-standing consensus of the of the, of the community. And under the Harmelin principles uh, of deference and reliance on objective factors, we think that's a a prominent objective factor. On, on Justice Stevens's hypo, taking it one step further, I guess we would have to say that if there were 15 uh, prior speeding offenses and they had been classified as felonies in, in California, that there was no disproportion between 25 to life or 15 with a predicate of 15 prior speeding offenses on the one hand, and the penalties for torture and murder, on the other hand, because I think it's undisputed that the only standalone penalties that are this great are the penalties for torture and, and homicide. That would be rather a stretch, wouldn't it, regardless of whether the legislature wants to put a felony label on them or not? Well, again, you're Be Beating's important, but, I mean, yes. torture and murder? I, I, I do think uh, that it is a much tougher case for us, and I'm not at all certain that it would be constitutional if all of the crimes, the predicate through the new crime, were simply speeding. I think Might it be an abuse of the judge's discretion not to reduce such a, if it's a wobbler in such a case, or not to strike a strike? Well, I don't, in the California context, the, the, the question would only arise, well, I don't think it would arise at all, because you wouldn't have a speeding even as a predicate any felony uh, triggering offense, and the speeding wouldn't qualify as a serious or violent felony under the statute anyway. So this, this hypothetical is, is very far removed from the three-strikes scheme that, that California has in place. I would have thought that your response to Justice Souter uh, would have been that it might seem disproportionate insofar as the penal goal of punishment or retribution is concerned. But it depends on, on what you want your penal goals to be. California has decided that uh, disabling the criminal is the most important thing. 
Uh, and uh, in, 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 from that point of view, it's not necessarily disproportionate. The one is disabled as the other. Well, I mean, proportionality, you, you necessarily have to look upon what the principal objective of the punishment is. Mm-hmm. If, the objective of, 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 if the objective is retribution, then sure, uh, for, I guess it's disproportionate to execute somebody for killing only one person when you do no more than execute somebody for killing 20 people. But uh, if, if, if your purpose is disabling the criminal, I'm not sure that, that, it, that the example that uh, Justice Souter gave is, uh, is disproportionate. Well, again, Your Honor, I, I, don't, I don't think I would absolutely concede that it would be unconstitutional. I'm just saying that — Well, do you adopt Justice Scalia's uh, analysis? I mean, this came up in the briefs, and this was an interesting point. Uh, does the State, for purposes of proportionality analysis, uh, have the option to adopt a different theory of penalty? Uh, uh, and, and he's given an example. Do you, do you adopt that argument here, and do you think that is a justification that you want to rely on in this case? Yes, we do adopt the theory of incapacitation, and we do rely on incapacitation as a theory that justifies the sentence in this case. All right. Here's, here's the problem that I have with that, and this is, this, is, this is what I wish you would address. If we allow for purposes of proportionality or gross disproportionality analysis, this kind of Uh, consideration of of varying intentions, retribution, incapacitation, deterrence, and so on. And every time the state gets to a very high offense, the state says, oh, we've changed the theory. We've gone from deterrence to retribution. It seems to me that it makes this kind of analysis of comparables, this proportionality analysis, impossible because we no longer have two comparable entities on either side of our comparison. What we have is a low sentence on the one hand for deterrence and a high sentence uh, for incapacitation or retribution. We have apples and oranges instead of oranges and oranges. So my question is, if we accept the state's option to say we've changed the theory, don't we read comparability analysis right out of the law? Doesn't it simply become logically impossible? Well, I think it becomes much more difficult, uh, but I don't think it necessarily becomes logically impossible because I think there's still room for uh, judicial scrutiny within the context of the Harmelin narrow proportionality principle to take a hard look. But my, my problem is I don't know what we're supposed to, what we can compare for, for, for comparable examples on proportionality analysis if it can be fundamentally affected by the state's change of intention from one theory in one crime uh, or one set of penalties to another theory in another set of penalties. I don't see what we can compare. We no longer have comparables. Well, but I think the court can still look at whether the, the, the phenomenon, uh, as in this case, of, of, of heightened uh, recidivism, based on prior violence or serious uh, offenses threatening violence and triggered by a new crime that's, a, uh, that's classified as a felony by the legislature and that offers a sentence of, uh, of a lengthy sentence but that still offers a possibility of parole. The- I, I guess the conclusion that Justice Souter's questions would lead to is that a state cannot use any factor except retribution, or if it uses any other factor, it does so at the risk of our simply holding it to be disproportionate. Yes, I don't know that our, our, I'm sure our cases don't support that. And and I acknowledge it it, to Justice Souter, it makes it a very difficult situation, but under Harmelin, those, I think, are penological objectives that uh, the judiciary ought to defer to the state. But maybe, maybe, and we haven't said this, maybe our assumption is that the state Uh, in establishing a penal system is going to establish it on a set of consistent and neutral principles from beginning to end. Would that be a legitimate basis for us uh, to to ground our constitutional analysis? No, Your Honor. It disables the states from from dealing with changing conditions. Thank you, Mr. Ginnicola. Mr. Chertoff, we'll hear from you. (coughs) Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I think the last series of questions which Justice Souter posed to Mr. Dinacola really framed the issue 
in light of this case's most recent pronouncement in Harmelin, this Court's most recent pronouncement in Harmelin. I would have read Harmelin uh, as establishing two principles at a minimum. One is the analysis is not proportionality, it's gross disproportionality, an extremely rare basis to invalidate a statute. Second, we recognize that the states are entitled to adopt different penological theories or a mix of theories. In fact, I would have thought that a state's entitled to say, for example, that certain types of crimes ought to be addressed in terms of retribution. Other types of crimes posing other kinds of issues can be dealt with in terms of deterrence and incapacitation. And if the consequence of that principle is that this Court has a very limited review on comparability of sentences, at least where we are dealing with sentences that allow for the possibility of parole, then I think the conclusion is that it is the extremely rare case in which a sentence gets Why isn't that this case? I mean, I don't know how to approach (coughs) proportionality other than to say what sentences are given for the same crime or what crimes are treated with the same sentence. Now, suppose looking at that, I find this is the rare case. If it isn't, why isn't it? I mean, all the information we have, as I've said before, seems to suggest that this is higher by a factor of two or three times anything else you can find. Well, just that isn't grossly disproportionate. Why isn't it? Uh, it's not for several reasons, Your Honor. First of all, um, although there's nothing in the record to speak to what the pre-1977 uh, proportions were in terms of sentencing, we do know, for example, that elsewhere in the country there have been comparable sentences. We've cited in the United States. Cited a lots of instances in which the law permits such a sentence, but that's quite different from saying there was such a sentence. Actually, I think at footnote 13, we've cited several cases in other states where you have very comparable uh, punishments, where you have larcenies between four and $700 as the third And, and do you have instances where people were sentenced to 25 real years in prison for having committed such an offense, or were you citing that the law would permit such a No, we cited review and, and rejection of disproportionality challenges in one case in Nevada to a life sentence without parole for a grand larceny of Good, okay, $476, and a similar one, I think, in South Dakota. Um, also, of course, as we look at the current sentencing regime, this is not as in Solemn versus Helm, where you have a single judge who is apparently an outlier uh, under the state sentencing scheme. In this case, if one takes, in fact, a petitioner's own figures, you have at least two to 300 individuals whose third strike um, under the California scheme as it now exists has, in fact, been a property-based crime. And I think the most compelling reason why this is not that very, very rare case where we strike down a sentence is precisely what Justice Ginsburg has been repeatedly asking about, the discretion that the courts have to tailor the particular sentence in this case to the facts of the case. If we look at the record in this case, uh, in the joint appendix, the sentencing judge carefully considered the entirety of the file with respect to the, uh, trigger, uh, the predicate offenses, <clears throat> which involved actually three burglaries in the course of a single month, one of which involved pulling a knife and threatening somebody, um, as well as uh, at least nine prior offenses. And interestingly, in no case since 1988 had the, the petitioner ever successfully completed probation or parole. He was always violating probation or parole by committing his next offense. And that's precisely what the sentencing judge looked at and explicitly referred to in rejecting the request on the part of the petitioner either to downgrade the triggering offense to a misdemeanor or to eliminate some of the strikes. And I would have thought that is precisely what we expect and want judges to do in a rational sentencing system. In effect, you're, I, going back to the, to the beginning of your argument, I think you're, I think you're saying that what the judge here uh, did in rejecting uh, the, 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 the request to downgrade or to disregard in effect was saying, yes, I am finding that this is a case in which it is appropriate to sentence on an entirely different theory, a, a, a theory of, of putting them away as opposed to a theory of deterrence. And I, I, that seems to be the, the logic of what's going on. 
That's correct, an entirely different theory, though that is embraced by the state in passing this law. But, and may, may I ask you one more question on that? Because, again, you, you, you started toward it in, in responding to me at the beginning. Like you, I, I, I came in here assuming that the state could change its theories. If that is so, then I guess what that means for proportion or, or gross disproportionality, disproportionality analysis is this. A state can do it and can pass our Eighth Amendment test if it has a reasonable basis for saying we are going under certain circumstances to say there is a changed theory of sentencing. The theory changes from deterrence or mere retribution to a a, a theory of public protection, putting away the person who simply will repeat and repeat and repeat. So for purposes of our proportionality analysis, the question would come down, do they have a reasonable basis for doing that under their statute in general? And in particular, is there a reasonable basis for saying that this is a case for that? And if the answers to those two questions are yes, then it passes the test. Is that — would you adopt that analysis? I, I would absolutely agree that if it satisfies those, those two, it passes the test. That's not to say that — um, if it flunks those, it automatically fails the test. But certainly if you meet those conditions, I think you pass the test. And I think there's a common sense to that. Um, one could look, for example, at certain types of violent crimes like murders and rapes and say, irrespective of whether it was a crime of passion or something that will never happen again, it is so heinous, our philosophy is we have to punish it. But one can also look at comparatively small crimes, at least if they're felonies, and say, if someone is repetitiously unable to conform their conduct to the requirements of law, we don't have to wait until he commits the next felony or the next two felonies before we put an end to it. And interestingly, if one goes back to Blackstone, who talks a little bit about the issue, uh, issue proportionality as it related back in his day, he discusses the fact that when you deal with habitual offenders, it would be cruel to the public to simply allow that person to get out again and commit their next crime. So I don't know that it's so much that that the state changes its theory as that the state adapts its theory to the particular type of crime and particular type of offender. And that's, of course, what we want to have in sentencing. And finally, I would say this. In a scheme like California, where the state judge has the power to tailor to the particular offender and the particular offense what the right answer is, for the federal courts to come in under gross disproportionality analysis and recalibrate that, even if sitting as state trial judges, uh, the justices might feel we would do it differently, would be essentially converting the courts into a constitutional sentencing commission. And if one looks at the companion case... Excuse me, would be essentially to... ...convert the court into a constitutional sentencing commission, doing the kind of analysis that we now have a sentencing commission... That would be a very bad thing, I agree. It would be a certainly very complicated thing, Justice Breyer. Um, so, and if one looks at the companion case... Uh, Andrade and the subsequent cases in the Ninth Circuit that have flowed from that case, one sees this phenomenon beginning to emerge, where every fact pattern is evaluated slightly differently. Um, one court views burglary as being a violent offense. One court says it's not a violent offense. Could you argue that because discretion uh, is consistent with the goals of the statute before the sentencing, uh, that some discretion is also permitted to a reviewing court after the sentencing? and it can still maintain the symmetry and the purpose of the statute? The, st- the state law could certainly provide for some kind of review as a matter of state sentencing law in terms of the, uh, abuse of discretion by the sentencing judge. But in this, in California, does the appellate court ever set aside sentences on the ground it was a, an abuse of discretion to invoke the three-strike law? Um, I, I know of, of cases where they have affirmed trial judges that have um, set aside strikes. I don't know of the case. I mean, has the trial judge ever been set aside for imposing the third strike? Um, I, I'm not aware of I that. I'm not aware of such a case. Um, certainly the state law could allow that to happen. If there are no further questions, I will turn the rest of my time to the court. Thank you, Mr. Chertoff. Mr. Denver, you have one minute remaining. Your Honor, the point I'd like to make two points. One is that the discretion in, under the California law is very limited. One thing would be to treat a wobbler, if it is a wobbler, and reduce it to a misdemeanor. So you would go from 25 to life or life to one year maximum 
penalty. That's not used very often. The other one is to strike a prior conviction, but that's a, the California Supreme Court in Romero said that's a very limited discretion, that it is only when you can find that this offender is outside the spirit of the law, whatever that is. And there's a, there's a amicus brief filed by the Los Angeles Public Defender in Romero that shows that that discretion has been used very little in California. So the, the, this limited discretion has no effect on it. The only other point I'd make, as far as the repetition, as far as the labeling, if, if all the legislature has to do is say what we're doing here is incapacitation and therefore the court can't look at that, then it really writes the, the Eighth, Eighth Amendment uh, protections against grossly disproportional sentences out Totally. If it's just a question of they say, here's our reason, and you can't even question that, because they can always claim they want to incapacitate any criminal for any amount of time. Thank you, Mr. Denver. The case is submitted.